My message today is entitled, Resisting Tyrants Today. I wonder if that's going to be censored on YouTube. It doesn't take much nowadays, does it? Resisting tyrants today. Evil has been in our world from the beginning, right? It was introduced by the serpent. Our original parents opened the door to it, and now it has multiplied exponentially. The remedy to evil is the Messiah and his people. We are the answer and the bulwark against evil. Right now, more than ever, we must rise up and by God's power confront and overcome this diabolical intrusion into our lives, our communities, our nations, even the world that we live in. With continued prayer and unity and action and sacrifice on our part, we can preserve, we will preserve and triumph over the darkness of this world. So let's talk about this intrusion of evil in our world. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I hope you're following the Torah portions. We have the reading schedules out there. It's a great family devotional time. You can read those during the week and discuss them at the table with your kids. I mean, it's exciting. The stories are exciting. The, this flood that we read about in Noah's day is an exciting topic for your kids. So, Genesis 3. 1 through 15, the introduction of evil into our world. It states, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So it opens with this uh, statement about evil. And it describes evil in the language or in the term serpent. The serpent, right? And this serpent is actually not a serpent. It is not to be taken literally, like some big boa constrictor type, you know, snake is slithered up to Eve, Eve, you know. I mean, what do you think? What do you think would happen with most women as they turn around and there's this big snake in your face, right? Yeah, this this idea of the serpent is really kind of a metaphor for a fallen angel or a fallen divine son of God. Later, we find the name of the serpent is Satan, right? It's actually a being, a person, a fallen divine son of God. In fact, we see this in Isaiah and Ezekiel, Romans and Revelation, this whole idea of, of this divine fallen being. See, luminescence, light, Glory is one of the characteristics of divinity. This serpent was a fallen divine son of God who would have been glorious and beautiful. And as this being approached Eve, 
she would not have been scared. She would not have been repulsed. This was an Elohim, one of the created gods who served in the divine council of the gods, who served the most high God. This is the one that approaches Eve. In fact, I don't have time to go into it, but one of the parent uh, roots of this word for serpent actually means shining or bronze, something that shimmers and reflects light. Um, And then we see, of course, in the other descriptions that these uh, divine beings all are beings of light. So it's it's fascinating when you kind of decode uh, the language that's being presented here in the story. It goes on to say, And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Know well the first strategy of the evil one, right? The first strategy of evil is to get you to question the word of God. He just presented her with the, with the idea of questioning what God had said. In essence, he was saying, question the truth. Why would he say that? He wants her to believe that maybe truth is not truth at all. Maybe it's just all relative to whatever you want to make it to be. Maybe it's not truth at all, right? It goes on to say, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. His second strategy is to actually contradict the word. First strategy, question the word. Question truth. Second strategy, contradict the truth. He begins to undermine her faith as he gets her to question the word of God. And then he actually contradicts the word of God. Oh, you surely will not die. You're immortal. The very definition of immortality is you cannot die. And God knows it. He's lying to you. He's lying to you. At the end of the day, God can't be trusted. And this is the seduction of Eve. It's a very very, uh, uh, convincing and compelling uh, description of that seduction. He goes on to say, For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, 
the woman whom you gave me or gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now, as you keep in mind the metaphor and what it's referring to, an Elohim, and as we later find out down through the revelation of scriptures, it's a cherub. It's one of the guardians of the throne, perhaps the greatest of all the archangels, Satan himself, right? And we know from later texts that Satan actually seeks to displace God himself and to take his place as the Most High God. In this passage, really what we find in terms of what's being conveyed is this idea, you, to the serpent, you, O Elohim, who is above all the living souls of the earth, you now shall be brought lower than all of them. Because you conspired to take my place as the most high, you will now become the most low. Right? He's going to become the lowest of all the soulish animals. He's lower than even the animals, the beasts of the field, who are, by the way, living souls. To be cast down to the ground is the imagery of, of really um, being debased, being, being brought low. In fact, we'll find in other portions of the scripture that that same phraseology of being cast to the ground is actually a reference to not the literal earth, but the underworld of the dead. When you're buried, you're buried in the ground. It represents the realm of the dead. He won't even be on the same level as the animals of the earth. He'll be in the underworld, unseen from this world. He is brought low, this author of evil, who introduces evil into our world. And we know from uh, Yom Kippur, we talked about this in Yom Kippur, Azazel, the fallen one, who is really, uh, a, he's even called a, a Satan in the book of Enoch. There's many Satans. Well, this particular one, Azazel, is the chief among Satans. And later in the New Testament, we, we know that that is basically synonymous with the serpent of old, who we call Satan. The one who sought to be the Most High God is now brought and is the lowest of all of creation. He goes on to say, Genesis 3.15, God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the first, first time in Scripture in which we get this idea of a redeemer, a messiah, a savior who will come and right the wrong of evil's introduction into our world. The Hebrew can mean bruise, strike, or crush. Depending on your translation, you'll see 
one of those three. In fact, the New Century Translation says this, I will make you and the woman enemies of each other. Your descendants and her descendants will be enemies. Think about that, right? Your seed and her seed. Your descendants and her descendants. What is that in reference to? What would be the descendants of the serpent? Is that literal? Well, the serpent isn't literal. It's a divine being. Maybe the children function as those who identify with the serpent and his nature. Those who are unbelievers in their sin and shame led by the spirit of this world. Those are the children of the serpent, the children of Satan. So we see this war in the heavens is going to come to the earth and it's going to continue on the earth between the descendants of the Messiah, those who are believers, and the descendants of the serpent. And it goes on to say in this particular translation, one of her descendants will crush your head and you will bite at his heel. Again, this is the first time there's a reference to a Messiah who will come and ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Let me give you a Pauline application to this verse. Paul does something really uh, different with this particular verse. He writes in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that interesting? Who crushes Satan in the end? God does. In and through the Messiah, in us, under our feet, we participate in the defeat of the enemy. We are participants in the war. We are engaged in this battle. It has come to us, and we must fight or be defeated. There is no middle ground. And you are warriors of God. You can get the job done. I am so proud to be part of this community and to see your courage and stamina and perseverance in the midst of the shutdowns and the division that are brought to our community and that you're here persevering because you are true believers and you're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So God is going to, through the Messiah in us, crush Satan under our feet. So this is the ever-present struggle between good and evil, the children of darkness and the children of light, the believer and the unbeliever. I want to jump back, if you will, and look at some of the antecedent theology to how this is worked out. This is kind of the backdrop of the New Testament uh, perspective on our spiritual warfare. So let's look at Psalm chapter 2 at the ever-present war. Psalm chapter 2. I'll begin in verses, I think, 1 and 2. Actually, 1 through 3. Why are the nations in an uproar, right? I mean, isn't that just as relevant as you could get today? What, what is up with the nations? Man, they all got their shorts in a bunch. 
It's unbelievable to see what's going on around the world. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. When you look at the nations, generally speaking, they do not love the God of Israel. They do not love his son, Yeshua the Messiah. And they certainly don't love his people. In fact, you could make a case for some pretty steeped, baseless hatred that then goes on to legislate a lot of suffering for the people who believe in God, for the people who love God. And they are suffering around the globe in immense and profound ways. They say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. When unbelievers gain power and authority, they always scheme to oppress and persecute the people of God. And fetters and cords are metaphors also. For the Torah, what is that? Is that like my, my time's up? Hope not. Okay, thanks. I can go forward. Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. So fetters and cords are metaphors for the Torah, for the ways of God, for the rule and reign of God. And the nations are saying, we don't want anything to do with it. We don't want anything to do with God, and we don't want anything to do with his ways. We are God. We'll make our own ways, and we'll legislate our own ways. That's Marxism. That's communism. That's secularism. And this is what the nations thrive on. And there's only been a few nations uh, down through history who have said otherwise. We are one of those nations, one nation under God, who believed in the sovereignty and providence of God, the creator of all, who made us all in his image equal as a result of that, image bearers as a result of that, and gave us inalienable rights, the right to life, the right to liberty, the right to pursue our happiness, the right to, the, the right to justice under the law. And now our nation is under attack. Our nation is falling. The decline of America is the decline of the, the last greatest, what I would say, I would say this, the last great Christian nation. And, and people will argue and say, well, it's not a Christian nation. And I get that, I understand that. But what I'm trying to point out is our nation has within it permeated throughout a Judeo-Christian paradigm and mindset, and our laws, everything, is, is revolving around that. And now they're trying to like, like change all that, destroy all that. They're not even trying to change it. They're trying to actually get rid of it and bring in something entirely new. Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. God scoffs at them. I think that's significant in, in a lot of different ways. We tend to think, oh no, you know, this thing's going to really get really bad. And yet God is in the heavens and he's laughing at that. He's saying, really? You, you think you're mightier, mightier than me, wiser than me? 
This is my creation. Through my son, I'm taking it back. In the end, you will lose. So for us, the believers, we need to look above the circumstances and realize God is on the throne. He mocks them among the nations. Their agenda, their schemes. He has a plan to overthrow them. They will not overthrow him. We don't have to run and hide. We need to actually stand up and fight. And that's a metaphor. We'll talk about spiritual warfare. Put that gun down. I'm just... Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now this um, verse is very messianic. And of course it has its forerunner in King David. Uh, but really the fullness of that's going to be Yeshua, the Son of God, who's exalted and made King of kings and Lord of lords, who sits at the right hand of God, who will return again to judge the living and the dead. I've installed my king upon my throne. Verses 7 and 8. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's interesting that Paul takes that prophecy and says it's fulfilled. In the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, this passage is actualized. Jesus, in his resurrection and ascension, then receives the power and the glory of the kingdom, the authority to rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. The nations say, no, we're going to live our own lives our own way, autonomous, apart from you. God says, really? i got a different plan. I'm going to take your nations and give them to my son. He is righteous. He's the king. He will oversee them. You're a bunch of tyrants with all your self-interests, which always end up rebelling against me and lashing out on my people. No, I'm going to take all your stuff and give it to my people. I'm the Lord God. I'm the creator of all things seen and unseen. All of creation is being brought under the rule and reign of Jesus. God is taking back his creation through his son. At least all who are willing. All who are willing. This is a very important point. When we talk about reconciliation, that in Christ all things are reconciled, that word reconciliation can be understood in a number of different ways. It can be understood in, in the sense of making everything square, making everything answerable or accountable, so that the good is accountable and the evil is accountable, and everything meets its end and receives its recompense in that reconciliation. God is going to redeem everyone who is willing, but he's not going to redeem those who are unwilling. I want you to think about this for a minute. Our former President Trump, his plan, his exit plan from Afghanistan would have safely brought home all Americans who wanted to leave Afghanistan. 
But he made it clear that he would not force any Americans to come home who did not want to come home. The father isn't willing that anyone should perish, but he's going to allow it. He's not going to force people into his beautiful age to come if they don't want to. If they don't want to be a part of that, he's going to respect their free will decision. And they will not be a part of that. Psalm 2 and verse 9. You shall break them, the nations, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Note the violent aspects of the rule and reign of Yeshua against rebel nations and rebel leaders. He's not only the passive lamb of God. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has a scepter and a rod of iron, and he will smash the nations who have rebelled and hurt and committed crimes against humanity. Yeah, there's something about Yeshua that is absolutely fierce and overwhelming in terms of uh, righteousness. We see that in this psalm here. It goes on to say in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, take warning, O judges of the earth. You see, all elitist rulers will be held accountable. Every one of them will be held accountable. Over and over and over, we see in the biblical text that God uses natural phenomenon as well as human agency in carrying out his judgments. We have depictions of God, you know, traveling on the clouds of heaven. He's going to bring judgment to a particular country for its evil. And he's prophesied that he's going to do this, 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 and that. And then all of a sudden you read in the same book, The Fulfillment, and it's usually natural phenomenon, pestilence and drought and famine, hunger and war, civil war, even using invading pagan armies to bring that nation down that he said he was going to bring down. But then when he goes to do it, he always does that through natural phenomenon and through human agency. And once you understand that, You'll never read world history the same again. If you care to accept it, I believe Jesus allowed and may have even employed, in fact, I believe he did, the U.S. and allied forces to bomb the anti-Semitic Third Reich into kingdom come. You know, Hitler, he was an elitist, he wanted nothing to do with God or his people or his laws. He wanted to be the Third Reich. Reich means third reign. Reich means reign. He was talking about raising up the third millennial reign of, of, of the superior people of his descent. I really think he was so deluded, he thought he was some type of Elohim, some type of God on earth, like most of them view themselves. And I believe that Jesus answered him. 
and the bombing of Berlin when those elitists scurried around like rats trying to find a hole to dive in as the whole city fell. In that same era, we saw a peg in Japan who on the morning of December 7th, 1941, viciously attacked and slaughtered more than 2,400 Americans, including civilians, and wounded additionally 1,000 of our people. We saw Japan broken and shattered like a piece of pottery when we bombed Nagasaki and Hiroshima into kingdom come. And I know that that is just almost too much to even talk about. Everyone's so sensitive, you almost can't even talk about history. But if you understand that God involves himself and actually comes interacting with and participating in our history using natural phenomenon and even war to chastise the nations, all of a sudden, this takes on some additional meaning that we normally don't consider. This whole idea of the reign of Jesus, you know, Jesus ruling and reigning over creation, is certainly complex and at times deeply troubling for those who see him only as the lowly, passive, compassionate, huggable lamb of God, right? The lamb of God, <laughs> you know? He's so loving. Well, these depictions of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah are almost appalling at times. When you read some of the passages that deal with his rule and reign, it's almost too much at times to take in. And yet, these are aspects of who he is. When God is depicted only as a God of love, but not a God of justice, not a God who judges, then we have a deficient view of God. And I'm telling you, today in America, the view of God is so deficient. The view of God, even among the people of God, so deficient. Because all everyone wants to dwell on is the love of God nowadays. It's always the love of God. Love only within the context of love. There is no God who judges. There is no God who rights the wrongs. There is no God who brings about judgment for those who have committed crimes against his people. We need a balanced view of who Yeshua is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So what lessons should our leaders be learning today, right? I think based on these verses, and even just history itself, leaders should learn to serve the people with compassion and justice. Leaders 
should be securing the inalienable rights for each and every person that King Jesus gave them from the beginning. The right to life, the right to liberty, the right to pursue your happiness. The right to justice when you're trampled on. If leaders choose not to do that and instead choose to become tyrants, well, they better get some NASA diapers on because there's going to be hell for them to pay because our God will hold them accountable. Never forget, God gives power to the people. Gives power to to the people. And he will liberate his own and at the same time terrorize the tyrants. He goes on to say, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. This is actually a a message for our leaders. Not only here in our country, but around the world. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. You need to do that or you're lining up for the big, big smackdown that many other world leaders and their tyrants went through. All leaders need to revere him and his ways. All legislatures need to derive their laws from the laws of nature and nature's God. Only then will they be honored and blessed by the people they serve. Only then will they be preserved and rewarded by the government that's above them. Heaven. We are approaching a breaking point in our country. The division is greater than it's ever been. And now you have this phenomenon of our leaders in our White House trying to turn the Justice Department on the parents who are standing up in their school board meetings demanding to know what is being taught to their children and also uh, trying to hold accountable teachers who are quick becoming tyrants. And now... Our federal government is talking about labeling them as domestic terrorists, potential domestic terrorists. Where is this going? You know, when you have moms at these board meetings being threatened by now the federal government, this is reaching way, way down into the homes. They're getting ready to really mandate the the vaccine not only for the current age groups, which is, I think, 19 years and older, but they're now talking about moving that down to five years old. Five! Where they're going to come in and mandate that your child needs to be vaccinated or can't go to school. And they're going to use, what, the authority and power of the federal government? against moms that are saying otherwise? Yeah, the nation's at a break point, and God's about to intervene. 
And when he does, it's going to be hell to pay for tyrants that are actually beginning to oppress and now persecute God's people. How does he do that? How does he intervene? How does he bring the judgment? Natural phenomenon and human agency. And as I said earlier, and I'm going to say it again, and it's throughout the book, God actually invites and employs his people at different times to bring about those judgments. Psalm 2 and verse 12 says to these leaders, these tyrants, do homage to the Son. I want to send this to the White House. I want to send this to Congress. I want to send this to the Supreme Court. Man, if there was ever a time that our national leaders needed to understand Psalm 2, it's right now. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The wrath of the Son of God. That Jesus is capable of wrath should change our view of who he is. All will be reconciled in the end who wish to be reconciled. Those who freely and joyfully believe in Jesus will be restored to God's original purpose and glorious destiny. Those who freely reject him and his ways and in place of that embrace rebellion and sin and shame will be dealt with by the wrath of the Son of God. Let's read about that wrath of Jesus in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, through 3 through 10. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. The line of the tribe of Judah is coming back and it's going to be a firestorm. It's going to be a firestorm. You ever seen a firestorm? He's going to return with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. He, he's not coming back as the Lamb of God. He's going to come back in fury. 
He's going to come back in violence. He's going to come back in terror. He's going to come like a firestorm, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and for the, from the glory of his power. This is a part of the reconciliation of all things. When everything gets shaken down, the wicked finally are dealt with, evil is finally consumed, everything is broomed out, so that in the age to come, in that new created heavens and earth, there is no evil. There are no wicked offspring of the serpent anymore. They've been eliminated. This is referred to as an eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Now, this word eternal destruction is fascinating. Keep in mind that um, the word destruction is a noun. It's not a verb. So it's not like there's an ongoing act of destroying that never ends. No, no, it's, it's a destruction which affects are eternal. The result of this destruction is that it is eternal. Now, the question is, is how long is eternal? Well, it depends where you find this word in its context because it has different nuances. The word eternal, in some contexts, means a very long period of time, an age, an epoch. It doesn't mean forever without end. Unless, of course, it's associated with something that's forever and without an end. Then it actually means forever and without an end. So if you were to look at the word eternal in relationship to the priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple, yeah, you'll find that all that's eternal. So where is it if it's eternal? Well, it's eternal in terms of it ran its course for that epoch of time. It was given under the law and the prophets. That was an era, the era of the law and the prophets. When Jesus came, that era ended, and there was a new era that began, the era of Messiah. So the priesthood, uh, the sacrifices, the temple, it was eternal for that period of time, generation after generation, almost 2,000 years. The era of the law and the prophets. So the word eternal actually didn't mean forever in those contexts. This word, eternal destruction, is tied into the age to come. It's the return of Jesus. It's the age to come. The age to come is the eighth day. It's the never-ending age. It's the age that goes on forever and ever and ever. Everything that is in it from God to ourselves never ends. And because this eternal destruction takes place in that age, it means that that destruction is forever. It's an irreversible destruction. Those who are destroyed are eliminated, annihilated, cease to exist. Whatever you need to words to describe the idea that they never, ever come back again. This was communicated in 2 Thessalonians. This is the wrath of the Son. This is when he comes back to pay back evil and those who embraced it. They don't know what terror is. They don't know what torment is until they encounter it in their obstinate, 
stubborn rebellion when Jesus returns again. That's why the Bible calls the second death, or the lake of fire, the second death. It's the ultimate death. It's the death that's part of the age that never ends. Therefore, it's irreversible, a permanent death. So let's go to our conclusion and application quickly here. Jesus is on the throne right now, ruling over all power, all authority, seen and unseen. He's bringing everything into conformity with his agenda. In the end, everything and everyone will be held accountable. The good and the evil will be recompensed with either eternal rewards or eternal punishments. Until then, we have a mission and a strategy in the plan of redemption. What are we going to do until that time comes? Well, Jesus said very clearly in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our job is to bring the truth, the gospel, the love of God to unbelievers and then to disciple them. What that results in is the transformation of the individual and all that the individual influences. So when you think about it, our strategy is a strategy of love, of peace, of sharing the gospel. And as unbelievers embrace that, they experience not only forgiveness and reconciliation, but transformation. And then as they're being transformed, they influence every realm that they're in. Family, maybe they work in the government, maybe they're a religious leader, and believe me, there are religious leaders that need to be influenced with the ways of God. Education, maybe they're a teacher, right? Arts and entertainment. Business, right? Can you imagine if unbelievers in the media got saved and started to line up with the Word of God? Yeah, we wouldn't have a biased media anymore, you know? They would be like lovers of truth, wanting to just bring the news rather than create the news, manipulate the, the news, right? Yeah, so our job is really to win people, the unbelievers, all around us to the Lord. And in doing that, we bring about transformation. And that transformation will actually bring life to the nation and blessing to the nation. If the nation rejects our message and turns and persecutes us, the nation will fall. And it's currently falling, by the way. All around us, it's falling. I don't know how far it's going to fall or if it's going to come back, but it is certainly falling. So our strategies in our particular local community, of course, is lifestyle evangelism. Each of you recognizing who you are in Messiah, being felt with the Spirit, being sensitive, just reaching out to people around you, just being natural and normal and reaching out and sharing the truth when that's appropriate, when that person's you know, uh, drawing off you and, and just learning how to be real and authentic and introduce them to the love of God in Christ Jesus who dwells in you. Lifestyle evangelism, we've talked about that for years, right? Life groups, we're doing life groups, you know, 
Saturday night, Friday, or Friday night and Saturday night, those groups are very important to us too. Some people love to host, some people don't. For those that love to host, it's a great avenue to really reach out to people around you and also those who are already saved because we're supposed to disciple one another, not just do evangelism. It's not about having babies. It's about having babies and raising them up so they can be productive in, as, as adults in life, right? Religious services are appointed time. Life events like, like marriages and funerals and so forth, we get to shine with the love of God and influence people around us. Your career, whatever you do, you should recognize as a platform to influence people for the Lord and to bring his influence within that realm. This is how we change a nation. By God's Spirit, we will accomplish this mission. By God's Spirit, united in the Spirit, with the help of Messiah, we will triumph over tyrants and all evil everywhere. I want to leave you with the verse that we started with. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Shabbat Shalom.